Let's have the discussion. You're listening to Canter with Scott Natter. Welcome to the Canter Podcast. My name is Adam Breeze, and today we sat down with university professor and author, Dr. MJ Coco. In this episode, we cover all aspects of growing in cocoa, including how to take advantage of its unique properties, misconceptions, and important parameters you should be controlling. Let's get into it. Hello, welcome to Cantor. It's myself and Adam again today. Adam, welcome. How you doing, bud? You all right yourself, mate? Going well, going well. And we've got uh, our first guest from the Americas, uh, Dr. Coco from California. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Coco. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. How are you guys doing today? Yeah, really well, man. Yeah. Really well. It's really early by us over here. The uh, the time differences uh, meant we had to get up relatively early for this one, but it's uh, it's one we're definitely uh, excited for, so it's well and truly worth it. Um, Dr. Coco, could you just uh, tell our guests a bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got into the cannabis industry? Sure. Um yeah, so I, um, Dr. MJ Coco, I run the website cocoforcannabis.com. Um, we publish articles, tutorials, and guides on the science and practice of growing in cannabis. Um, that project, the Cocoa for Cannabis website, is uh, just over two years old. Um, I started that on the heels of publishing my book, uh, Cocoa for Cannabis, A Grower's Guide. Um, and that whole project really emerged out of um, my own sort of grow, my own garden, and um, being really kind of frustrated with um, the kind of information that was available online, um, especially in growing in soilless media um, and just coming across a lot of sort of detrimental practices and other practices that, that simply weren't sort of unlocking the potential of, um, especially the media cocoa, um, growing in core. And, um, you know, my background, so I have a, a PhD. I do research with farmers in Central America and Mexico and Central America. Um, and, my research is is more on um, the economics of farming and some of the sort of questions around development and crop selection and other things like that. Um, it, it's a different sort of angle and approach on agriculture, but I have a, a strong background of working with agronomists and working with others on sort of developing agricultural plans and um, evaluating agricultural development plans and other things like that. Um, and so, you know, coming out of sort of a grad school training and um, that work with agronomy, when I wanted to, to grow my own, I, I went into sort of the primary literature on um, hydroponics, on understanding, um, you know, nutrient uptake issues and understanding um, really how the plant interacts with the media um, and how to, to unlock the potential of, of different media. Um, uh, when I started growing my own, I was interested in in sort of pursuing this style, um, you know, largely for for some ecological and almost environmental reasons. I think that the decision to grow indoor plants under artificial lighting um, is a significant decision to make. It's a very energy intensive activity, and um, you know, a lot of people think about ecological and environmental issues in different ways. But 
when we're growing indoors, one of the most significant impacts that we have is the lights that we run, the amount of time that we're running these grows, and the amount of electricity that we're using to do them. Um, and I think that when you have a, a well-dialed-in um, cocoa grow in particular, it, it's really easy to have good success in a limited amount of time and actually reduce your, your sort of environmental impact that way. Um, so I wanted to try to, to help people have better success because it can be a very wasteful way to grow if you don't really know what you're doing. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a really, it's been a fun project. Yeah. So I, I gave a lot there. I don't know how I went all over the place. Hopefully <laughs> that addressed enough of my background. No, that, that's, that's really cool. Uh, one keyword you pointed out there is soilless media, uh, media and the biggest misconception is that cocoa is soil and I see it everywhere, like especially on yes. cannabis forums. And I think we should just get right into the aspects of cocoa and, you know, how is cocoa derived and where is it coming from? Yeah. So it's actually, you know, the ground husk of the coconut. Um, it, it is that um, the, the shell sort of material of the coconut that's ground it's aged it's then um washed to usually remove the sodium um and it, it needs to be aged sort of properly otherwise it, it won't um have good um rehydration properties that's actually an aspect of the the cocoa that's really fascinating is the way that it rehydrates after getting um dried out uh the, the, cocoa that husk material has a lot of really interesting properties that that sort of make it into a, a hydroponic miracle a horticultural cultural miracle um it rehydrates very well so it can dry out and get rehydrated although it's not a good idea to let your cocoa get dry when you're sort of running it grow um it holds on to a lot of water. So cocoa core can, can retain a lot of water, but it also retains oxygen in the root zone. It allows for high frequency fertigation. Um, you really can't get in, you can set it up so that you won't oversaturate and create hypoxic conditions. So lack of oxygen in the root zone. Um, there's a lot of controversy when, when people say you can't overwater cocoa, you, you can, if you don't have it well set up, if you have too much pith, if you have the, the wrong kind of pots, if you have too big of a pot, I mean, you have to sort of be prepared for that properly. But once you set it up properly, you really can't overwater. I'm actually watering now, um, nine times a day, um, because we're doing a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, look at your faces. <laughs> um, yeah, I am. Um, we're doing a, a party cup challenge in our okay, current cool. grow challenge. So I've got two plants that are normal plants um, in their their number five air pots, which is what I normally grow in. Um, and then I have one plant. It's in the eighteen ounce party cup. You know, the red party cup. Um, and in order to keep it's actually uh, an interesting sort of angle into what we're doing with high frequency fertigation and cocoa, thinking about this little party cup plant. Um, you know, you can think of your, your, your container as like the, the 
beer cup that your plant's sipping on, right? It's got its cup of water, essentially. Um, and if it's in a great big pot, then that great big pot can hold a lot of water. Um, and the plant's going to have plenty of water for sort of quite a long time. If you're in a smaller container like that, it, it's a smaller cup. You need to keep topping off that cup for the plant regularly or it will dry out and not have access to water. It will create a spike in the electrical conductivity, all of those things. So um, I had originally thought about running two um, irrigation lines into the tent from my, from my reservoir um, but then I decided, you know, it, it shouldn't be a problem at all for the larger plants to get a small dose of water nine times a day. Um, and the little plant would really benefit from having that. So my system is only running for 10 seconds, um, nine times a day to total of 90 seconds of sort of irrigation in a 24 hour cycle. Um, and, you know, if I had it on four or five times a day, it would still probably total the same 90 seconds. So that's one of, of sort of the other points is when you increase the frequency like that, you're not actually increasing the amount of water being applied in a 24-hour cycle. Um, you're just giving them more little bursts of water because one of my plants is in a really small container and it can't hold on to a lot of it. Um, but, yeah, they're growing they're growing like crazy. We're in the first few days of the the stretch in that um, our flip day was October 1st. So, you know, there's about a week after the flip that the plants sort of do their transition and then they take off into the stretch. So it's one of my favorite times to be a, a gardener, actually. Um, one thing that's certainly point uh, stands out to me, um, I, I run an agricultural store. Uh, we do have access to a whole range of cocoa sources. Um, the source and the manufacturer of the cocoa is is a very important factor, in my opinion. And I think you, you have fairly vast variation between quality of product when it does uh, hit the retail retail shelves. Um, do you find yes. that, that there are cocos out there that aren't being properly aged, that aren't being uh, properly flushed? Um, and what sort of effect would this have uh, for the end user? Um, you know, the main time that I've come across cocoa, so the, you guys are getting most of your cocoa there from Southeast Asian sources. Absolutely. Um, and most of the Southeast Asian cocoa will, I mean, there's a sort of a color difference. You can look at it and, and visually see if it's been aged properly. The lighter color cocoa, in my experience, um, from the Asian sources hasn't been aged as sort of adequately. Um, there's a difference with that because some of our cocoa here in, in the Americas comes from Central America. And it's actually a different sort of tint to it, a different color to it. So you, so you can't just go by by color but that did become sort of a thing where, where growers especially from southeast asian sources were looking for a darker sort of color to the cocoa um suggesting it had been aged uh, i guess in a, in a better way um yeah there is a difference now aging aside there's still a difference in in qualities of different sources of cocoa and the biggest difference there is sort of the ratio of the the pith to the fiber to the chips um if the cocoa goes too broken down then it, it just turns into dust essentially 
Um, and that's not the best media for us to grow in. We want some of the dust, but we want sort of a, a mix and we want more of the fibers in our mix than that. So um, some of the cheap brick products that you get when you rehydrate them, they're like mostly dust, right? Um, and that's one of the, the advantages of some of the bagged products. Um, the bagged products in general that are sold not dehydrated and compressed have a, a larger proportion of chips and of fiber than of the, the dehydrated cocoa. Um, would that sort of line up with your experiences in your market? Yeah, that's that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. the brick, a lot of the brick product seems to be inferior. Um, I'm sure of it. And we had a discussion just recently with a commercial capsicum grower that's tried different mediums. Um, they're a very successful grower, but they are basically telling us that you can't grow in cocoa because it holds too much water. And we were trying to explain that it's it's about the cocoa you're sourcing and uh, and about your methodologies. It's not about the, the media itself. You, you can certainly get uh, high productivity yeah. out of cocoa. Yeah. No, that's a, well, that's really true. If you get and, and they sell products to do this, they sell you a brick of dehydrated cocoa and they say just add water and then add seeds. And it's supposed to like expand up and fill the pot and whatever else. And that's going to be just full of cocoa peat, the, the dust that um, holds on to a lot of water. Um, and, and yes, yeah, so one of my famous videos, I rinse it out in a colander in my bathtub um, and you can see all this sort of brown water flushing out. And even in that really low quality brick of cocoa, there was some good fibers and some good material left over. But if I hadn't prepared that and then I mixed it with a lot of perlite to help sort of aerate and to help the, the drainage of the water through that. Um, the final thing to keep in mind there is I put it in relatively small containers, um, considering the size of the plants that we were growing. So, um, if any of those things had been different, if I hadn't rinsed the cocoa, if I hadn't added the perlite, or if I had been in larger containers, I would have probably had the same experiences as, as that grower, right? Where it's just holding on to too much water and it's causing problems with the plants. I think while we're yeah. talking about preparation of cocoa, um, it's a perfect time to discuss buffering and uh, yep. cation yeah. exchange. Um, so could you give yep. us a rundown of, of what, what I'm referring to there, please, Dr. MJ Coco? Yeah, that's one of the – so that's kind of the, the one downside to cocoa, right? There's a ton of, of benefits to cocoa. Um, it provides excellent root space. It provides an ideal air-to-water ratio when it's at field capacity once it's been properly um, prepared, like we've been talking about. It, it generally doesn't interfere with nutrition. Um, however, there's the issue of the, the calcium and magnesium, um, and it, it, you need to be aware of the, the extent to which that cation exchange happens with cocoa. Um, so cocoa has um, cation exchange sites, the, essentially sites on the surface area of the cocoa that can hold on to cations. Um, and it comes loaded, essentially, with either sodium or potassium cations on those sites. Um, in the presence of calcium or magnesium, the cocoa will release the, the potassium or the sodium and it will grab onto that, that calcium or magnesium. Um, and once it's grabbed onto a calcium or magnesium, it's essentially stable and it's considered to be then buffered. It won't, con that site won't continue to interact with the, the nutrient solution. 
Um, so what we do is we soak cocoa in a solution of um, a high dose of calcium and magnesium prior to using it. And that ensures that sort of as many of those exchanges take place as we can before we start adding plants. Um, you can and you should and you actually really still need to continue to supplement CalMag um, with your nutrient water. Um, but there, there's sort of a, a catch-22 there, um, especially with young plants. If you're trying to grow young plants in unbuffered cocoa, meaning it hasn't been previously treated with calcium and magnesium, the cocoa is going to need a pretty strong dose of calcium and magnesium. And the poor little plant can't handle really salty water at that point. It can't handle a high dose of EC. So it becomes tough to deliver as much calcium as you need without sort of frying the plant by giving it high EC water. Um, and that's an important balance to sort of keep in mind when you're growing seedlings in cocoa. You need to start seedlings on low EC water, which means you don't have a lot of calcium and magnesium in it. But you kind of got to ramp them up pretty quickly because you need to be able to increase the dose of calcium and magnesium or you'll start to show some problems. Yeah, while we're on that, could you uh, just – Tell our listener the differences between different water sources. So you've got your, your reverse, reverse osmosis water, your rainwater, and your tap water. And uh, using the tap water can uh, certainly hold that calcium uh, to a certain level, but it also has a, a starting EC point. Um, so could you just tell our listeners yep. the differences and, and how they should uh, observe those differences? In terms of just, I think I missed the very first part of that, but just in terms of what water you're using yeah, to, to yeah. mix newts or to do the buffering. Sure. Um, yeah, tap water comes with some stuff in it. Um, tap water often has calcium in it in particular. And so if you're starting with high EC water, um, it, it likely is high in electrical conductivity because of some dissolved calcium. Um, that's often not readily plant available. So it's not something that um, the plant's going to uptake, but the, the cocoa still can interact with some of that and still be buffered by some of that. But the, one of the benefits of cocoa, though, is it's not going to interact with a lot of other things. It's not going to interact with other kinds of, of um, minerals or other kinds of um, uh, potential cations or fertilizers or other things that may be in, in the water. So when you're doing things like rehydrating it or buffering it or sort of dealing with the cocoa without plants, you, you certainly can use tap water and electrical conductivity isn't terribly important because the cocoa is going to be interacting with the, the cations that it wants to interact with and everything else is basically left alone. Um, now, when you get plants, suddenly you have to worry about your EC budget, really what I think of as a, as a budget, that you have so much electrical conductivity that you can give to the plants. Um, you know, for seedlings, it's pretty low. I, I start my seedlings on an EC budget of 0 0.4 or 400 uh, microsiemens of electrical conductivity, um, which really isn't much of anything. Some tap water is that high already. So if, if you're trying to you know, provide plants with nutrients there. One of the times that I do use bottled water or filtered water 
um, is for seedlings there just to create that. So I have that 400 points to play with. It's not already taken up by my tap water. Um, when your EC budget increases and it, it increases quickly during the seedling stage, like I was talking about to get the, the plants up so they can tolerate a larger dose of calcium and magnesium in particular. Um, but during most of the grow, your EC budget's going to be about 1200 or so. Um, and you know, if a hundred points of that or 200 points of that is like the starting water electrical conductivity, you still have enough room to, to kind of work with, um, for the rest of your budget. But if your electrical conductivity is really higher than that, you're just eating into the amount of, of space you have in the budget to provide nutrients. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's the number one concern there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so going back to what we've covered, we've washed the cocoa and we're about to get ready to plant. So a really important aspect is pot size. Obviously, bigger pot yep. holds more water, smaller pot you have to fertigate more often. Yep. For the novice yep. grower, what would you recommend uh, for pot size? Well, you nailed it there. It's it's really entirely about fertigation frequency when it comes to like final pot size. Um, to begin with, though, I just like as a general rule, your pot, your plant should always be in an appropriately sized container for the size of the plant. So when it's a small plant, it should be in a small container. When it's a mid-sized plant, it should be in a mid-sized container. When it's a, a sort of a full-grown plant, then it, it is in its final container. But um, And I do recommend with cocoa um, going up through a transplant strategy in particular. Um, the transplant strategy really helps fill in the root space with roots. Um, and that's important. Getting back to the, the conversation about um, overwatering cocoa, um, most of the water that we add to the cocoa goes to the plant, right? It doesn't go to um, like the cocoa itself. People always ask like, okay, I'm in five gallon containers. How much should I water? It's like, it doesn't matter really how much, how big the container is. You're not watering the container. You're watering the plant. Um, and if the, there's a big area in the pot, if it's a huge plant or a huge pot rather without a lot of roots in it, there's going to be a lot of stagnant water that's just sitting there. That's not getting sucked up by the plant. Um, and what happens when you put a, a plant into a large container, the roots will try to find the bottom of the container. Um, and the, the best air to water ratio is always sort of up against the edge of the pot. So if you've grown, especially in fabric pots, you'll notice this. If you, if you grow a plant from seed in a large fabric pot, if you excavate that pot at the end of the grow, you'll have roots all around the edge of the pot and at the bottom of the pot because the roots prefer those areas where they have a better air to water ratio. They'll avoid the very middle of the pot, which means there are no roots in the middle of the pot, which means that the water just sort of sits there and creates hypoxic conditions, not enough oxygen for good plant life. And it really limits the total amount of volume that the roots have to work with, which is basically just at the edges of the pot then. But if you go up through a transplant strategy, you force the plant to colonize sort of each successive layer of of area right and so um i go up from like a one gallon or even a half gallon 
pot and I stay in there for a while and the roots sort of fill in that area. And then I put that into a larger container and the roots are already there. There's already good root density in all of those areas. So the first thing I just wanted to shout out when we're getting into pot sizes, transplanting really helps. Um, and transplanting is a good strategy um, for cocoa grows in, in particular for these reasons, especially if you want to practice high frequency fertigation. Um, <clears throat> the other thing with, with pot size, and this is one of the ways, Adam, that you're talking about how it's not soil. In soil, pot size really does determine plant size. Um, the size of your final container really has a big impact on how big your plant is going to be able to be. That's much, much less true in cocoa. Um, in cocoa, there's more root space available for the roots to grow, but the roots also stay healthier. So there's less root death and there's less need for root regrowth after root death, which happens in soil. Um, in soil grows, roots are going to eventually be exposed to hypoxic conditions where they can't get enough air and the parts of the roots die and the plant has to constantly be growing sort of new roots in order to deal with that and runs out of root space and all these things become limiting factors. And one of the main advantages of cocoa, it just keeps the air to water ratio really ideal and the roots stay healthier. And since the roots stay healthier, the plant doesn't need to sort of constantly put off as many new roots and it can support itself on a, in a much smaller container. So um, the, the size of the container, you know, I don't recommend getting sort of too small. I'll try to think in, in terms of liters for you guys. Um, but like a 10 liter pot is big enough to, to take into flowering and it with cocoa if you're going to do high frequency fertigation, like you were saying. But if you're going to be watering once a day by hand, then you should be in a larger container because you're thinking about the container as sort of your, your plant's beverage cup, right? And if you're only going to be filling that up once a day, it's got to be a bigger cup. If you're going to be filling it up five times a day, it can be a much smaller cup. Yeah, that's, um, that's an awesome explanation. <laughs> and I see like always over the internet, um, people seeing these awesome shots during transplant of like a, a full root ball in cocoa. And they always say it's root bound, it's root bound, you know, and people don't understand that, you know, in soil, when you water it, plant doesn't have a lot of um a lot of access to oxygen you know um when cocoa yeah. cocoa has an awesome air to water ratio yeah so that's that's really yeah. really cool and i'd just like to touch on and that's one of the reasons the roots end up in especially in plastic containers in soil you end up getting all the roots like spiraling right against the edge of the container it's the only place the root can find air yeah it's like right up in that boundary between the the pot and the soil itself like it has stands a chance of getting some air there yeah it's all because of the health of that the root zone that you're able to create yeah um so moving on to ec and feeding your plants you know one one thing i've found with the big pots is achieving runoff it takes a lot of water to achieve that runoff and if you don't get that runoff you get yourself into a lot of problems. <laughs> um, are yeah. we able to touch on the problems that arise when you don't water to runoff? Yeah, well, so what happens, um, you got to think about when you're adding water, when we're, when we're fertigating, right, we're mixing, and, and it's, 
we always think about it as nutrients in the water, but they're essentially for these purposes, it's, it's more helpful to just think of them as being salt. So we're adding salt to the water and then we're feeding salty water. Um, now the plant takes up the salt. We, we know it's important salts. These are the nutrients, right? Um, and it also takes up the water, but it doesn't take them up through the same processes always. And it doesn't take them up in the same ratios. Um, water tends to be removed faster than the nutrients, or at least it can be in a lot of cases. And that leads to salt buildup in the media as the water is removed and it leads to a higher and an increasing amount of, of salty water essentially remaining behind. Um, so that can cause problems with just the, the electrical conductivity. Um, as it gets higher, it becomes harder for the plant to pull water in across its osmotic membranes. Um, so the, the main way that, that plants get water, we, we sort of imagine them as having like a straw, you know, and like sipping on, on the thing and just taking like we would sip on a soft drink or something and you're getting the syrup and the water and all the rest of that stuff all together at once. Um, but the plant absorbs water through osmosis across osmotic membranes in its roots. And in the process there, it's taking in pretty much pure water through osmosis. Um, and then it takes in the nutrients through processes of diffusion and, and active or passive transport. Um, so in order to get water through osmosis, you have an osmotic membrane in the middle and you have salty water on one side so water with a, a, a solute in it that's dissolved and you have water inside the root, um, water will flow across that membrane in the direction of which side has, has a greater concentration of dissolved stuff in it, essentially, which side is saltier, we could say. So if the water in the pot is saltier than the water in the root, water will get sucked out of the root and into the media. Um, if so, the plant actually has to manufacture, and the plant doesn't manufacture salts. It manufactures sugars as its as its solute in its roots to raise. Essentially, you can think of it as raising the electrical conductivity in the root, so it pulls water into the root instead of getting water pulled out of it. Um, so when the when the electrical conductivity rises in plants, it becomes harder and harder for them to get water. Um, and it can become impossible for them to get water. You start seeing signs of wilting and you start seeing signs of tip burn and other things like that. Um, the other thing that can happen with infrequent fertigation and allowing sort of the salts to accumulate by or not getting runoff, I think was what you were premising this with, right, um, is you can you can actually create sort of nutrient lockout situations um, that really prevent the uptake of, of certain nutrients. Um, so it, it's, and that's one of the advantages of how we're running it. We can avoid these things by just constantly sort of feeding, right? We can constantly reapply the, the nutrients and getting that little bit of runoff. Um, the cocoa doesn't want to hold on to the salts at all. So the, the salts will readily dissolve into water when water is present, um, and so when we add water to the top, when we're top feeding in our fertigation, if there's a concentration of salts within the media, as that new water comes in, it dissolves into that new water. And the little bit that comes out the bottom sort of makes sure that we're getting rid of a higher concentration. We can also then measure that little bit of water that comes out and sort of 
get an insight into what's going on with electrical conductivity in the in the root zone. Yeah, that's that's an awesome that's an awesome tool to use the runoff, um, especially if you're if you measure your runoff and the AC is too high. This is a good sign that you need to be fertigating more often. Um, and a lot of people tell exactly, me, and, and that's yeah. that's exactly right because the the EC is going up. You basically want to think about this, right? That when you add water right after you've fertigated, growers think when they're first coming into this, they think, okay, that's when like the plant has the most fertilizer or whatever that's there. Um, but it actually has the lowest ratio of fertilizer to water because you've just added that and. Now, as you wait between fertigation events, water is being removed faster than the nutrients. So the EC is going up all the time, basically, in, in most situations. In between fertigation events, the electrical conductivity will rise. Um, and that's why if the EC is then showing up that it's too high, you need to increase the frequency, which is exactly what you said. Sorry, can I just quickly put a shout out to a tool that Blue Lab have released uh, the pulse meter. Yeah, I think everybody that's growing in run-to-waste or high-frequency fertigation cocoa uh, should look into this tool. Uh, the, the the pulse measures both EC and uh, total uh, a relative humidity of the of the media. So it gives you an idea of how much water's in there and how many salts there are, and you can measure at varying depths. and And it's a real just a really handy tool to to really dial things in. Yeah, um, sorry to throw that in, but I just no, hundred percent. Um, using yeah, using the right the tools. Yeah, within the root zone. Yeah, so it has two probes. Yeah. Uh, measures the EC, and I just I just like the the ability to to check pot to pot as well, which is pretty handy. Yeah. Um, I usually just use the the runoff as the proxy, and it's important. It, it, it's nice to have the the data coming from right inside the pot. Be aware that there are a lot of sensors designed to be stuck in pots that are are really largely useless too. Um, so these like two prong triple meter things that are supposed to tell you how bright it is and how much those, uh, the the pH and stuff those are are not really worth the material they're made out of um but it, it definitely sounds like the meter you're talking about is is not that i just want to sort of clarify for users there's unreliable things like that as well but yeah that's better what we really care about is the electrical conductivity in the root zone we usually measure the runoff electrical conductivity as sort of a proxy for what must be going on inside the root zone, but we're not measuring it directly in most of the time. Um, but when the runoff EC starts going up a lot, we know, okay, something is out of whack here. Something needs attention. Yeah. And um, talking about EC, a lot of people tell you when you first start in cocoa, you should always flush once a week. And this is just, Horrible advice. <laughs> um, the theory behind high-frequency fertigation is that you're flushing with every single feed. So all the old salts are yes. being flushed out. Um, and you just touched yes, on... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, a caveat there, though, because there are some nutrient lines that will create lockout and do require flushing. Um, and so that's that's sort of a warning sign from a nutrient company in my opinion when they tell you look you need to flush weekly or even you need to flush every other week my question is why what's going on with your nutrients that they, they i need to do that like 
what's getting out of balance in that process or, or what's getting out of, of um, you know, uh, the ratio and creating a lockout situation or something else. So to be aware that there are some nutrients that if they recommend weekly flushing, that's more because their nutrients may be causing a problem. But to your point, Adam, um, you shouldn't need to flush because you are creating that little mini flush with the runoff that comes each time. Um, so the goal with a, a well set up cocoa grow is to avoid flushing. Um, certainly flush when you need to flush if nutrient lockout signs show up, if you're having real struggles with runaway EC is just way too high and you can't get it to go down. I mean, there are some times that it's really called for to flush, but as a regular practice, yeah, I mean, no, you, you really, it's not helping the plants unless they need it. Yeah. And on the topic of lockouts, you know, a super high EC is going to cause these lockouts. Um, and another super important factor when it comes to cultivation is pH. You know, if your pH yes. is not in lock, uh, locked in, you can get a lockout. <laughs> so can we just touch on pH and why it's so important? Yeah, pH. Um, there are a few nutrients in particular that, that really require a, a, a specific range of pH in order to be well absorbed by the plant. Um, and, and there's also some nutrients that require a specific range of pH in order to stay soluble in the solution. Um, so there's sort of those those two issues, one relating to nutrient uptake and the other just relating to, to solubility. I mean, it will precipitate and fall out of solution. Um, that happens to, for example, silica. If the pH gets too high on silica, it will just precipitate and won't dissolve at all. Um, and so we, we need to provide nutrients within the appropriate pH range. Um, and for the, the types of hydroponic nutrients that we're using, that pH range is, they, you know, the, the companies usually say 5.5 to 6.5, um, but it's generally better not to get down to 5.5. You can get up to 6.5. 5.5 is a little bit low, and you can start, especially in cocoa, and really the reason is calcium. Um, it may be fine for a few other things, but I wouldn't live at 5.5 for very long. I would expect it to provoke calcium issues, um, which really calcium is better absorbable sort of above 6.2. So it's one of the ones that when you run lower in the pH range, it's already a, a, a sensitive one in cocoa. Um, but you want to make sure that the water you're putting in is the correct pH that the water you're putting in is within that range. And, um, you know, if you're running automatic watering system, your pH will almost always rise during the course of time that the reservoir is full. Um, that, I don't want to scare people, but that is bacterial growth that's generating that, that electrical conductivity rise. Um, but if it's sort of minor enough, it's not going to cause issues, especially to sort of healthy roots grown in cocoa. Um, that's one of the advantages of growing in cocoa. We have healthier roots and our plants can actually fight off dirtier water. So there can be quite a bit of pythium in the water that we provide our plants. And since they have healthy roots in cocoa, they can fight that off. That if you were doing something like that in DWC, you'd likely end up with root rot. Um, so it actually does allow you to have sort of a maybe not as hygienic practices on on one side um how did i get into to pythium 
<laughs> P- PH. I knew this yeah. because the question about something else. I wandered there. I can't remember how you. <laughs> no, I, you did a great job just then. Uh, yeah, so we, Adam was asking about the importance of pH and, and the pH on the input, and I think you mentioned a really good point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about pH rise. Yeah. yeah so the pythium causes the pH rise. Yep. So I usually put water into my res at like 5.8-ish um, and then allow it to kind of drift up to 6.2-ish before – I either top off or, or refill it at the end of the, or, you know, clean out and refill it at the end of the week. Um, so, it, and if you're hand watering, it's important to kind of allow the pH to work around in that range a little bit. Don't just drill in, especially if you're hitting one of the ends of the other, don't just drill in on like 6.4, 6.4, 6.4, or like 5.6, 5 5.6, 5.6, you'll provoke problems at the other side of that scale. Yeah, that was really interesting. And I think you mentioned a, a really good point that uh, the microorganisms can cause that pH rise. So uh, sometimes when people see their, yeah. their pH rising up in their reservoir, uh, guys, check out what the what, what's going on with the bacterial growth. Yeah, it? it's a warning, especially if it's going up fast. Yep. Um, if it drifts up very slowly, like I was saying, like if it goes from 5.8 to 6.2 over the course of four or five days, you're okay. If it goes from 5.8 to 6.2 in 12 hours, yep. you, you probably need to address address something there yeah. and, and take it out and do a clean out. Don't worry about like the that. pH down. Just <laughs> just get a new yeah, a new solution yeah. in there. Well, that's what a lot of growers do. They just add pH down to their reservoirs, and it's like, okay, at some point you're going to have to address the fact that the reason the pH is rising yeah. is that there's a bacteria colony growing in your reservoir. So to be aware of that. The other thing I wanted to say about pH is in a media like cocoa, it's going to change. As water is extracted and as nutrients are extracted from the water by, by the plant, the pH will change. Most of the time, through most of the growth cycle, the pH is going to rise in cocoa. Um, and so if you do measure the outflow, you'll see it be higher than the inflow pH was. That's not always true. Um, growers get themselves into lots of trouble by trying to chase that, by trying to correct that. Um, so they'll be putting in water and they'll be like, but my runoff is up at 6.5 and I want to get that down. so I've been feeding at 5.5 for the last week and I still have problems. I'm like, okay, but the problems are because you've been at 5.5 for the last week. It has nothing to do with the runoff pH being too high. Um, and there's just been so many examples of growers, it, you know, once you measure it, once you see that it's like, oh, my runoff pH is 6.8, it's going to be like impossible for you the next time you're mixing nutrients, not to have that in the back of your mind and be like, I'm going to go a little bit low this time. I'm going to, I'm going to make it a little bit lower this time because I think it's too high in the runoff. And then when you sort of step back, you realize that you've been running a little bit low the whole grow because of the same reason, because your pH was a little bit high the whole time. So I, I literally tell growers, this is the one piece of information you don't really want. It's the one piece of information that can actually make you make you make bad management decisions is knowing what your runoff pH is. Um, there are some times when you're dealing with specific in- issues that I might be curious what's going on with your runoff pH. But as a general rule, I think it's actually helpful not to know. It's helpful just to like know that you're supposed to provide inflow water that's between 5.5 and 6.5, really like 5.8 and 6.3 or, you know, in that range and just 
keep moving around that range, like ignorant about what it's coming out at, because if you know what it's coming out at, it will affect what you're putting in. Yeah. And um, you touched on really quickly the uh, precipitation of nutrients. And I just want to send out a warning for our listeners. Uh, If you're cultivating in a legal setting, of course, you should always, always dilute your pH up and down when adding it to your reservoir. Because uh, if you don't, and if you just add straight pH down, you're going to get uh, (laughs) hot spots of like different pH levels and it's, you're just going to run into a whole lot of problems. So (laughs) just a quick warning. You can see that. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's some, there's some tips around that. That's a really good point, Adam. Um, There, if you have a bottle of mixed newts and you realize at the end, um, okay, I want to, I need to adjust my pH down, right? I'm up, my, my pH is too high. And you just get some pH down and you squirt it straight into that mixed nutes. You can see little like sort of wavy cloudiness as the pH down goes through. That is nutrients falling out of solution. Right. The pH was like so radically lowered on them that that's that's like a little cloud of nutrients falling out of solution. That's actually something I've seen uh, commercial commercial cucumber growers actually (laughs) actually do really uh, put that pH down in way too quick without diluting. And um, yeah, and I believe I believe it's calcium that's precipitating other nutrient solution. I'm I'm not 100 percent on that, but it may be. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that would make sense for in that in that kind of a condition that calcium would precipitate out. Um, yeah, so I think your your point here in terms of diluting it is you can dilute the pH down in even a little bit of water um, really sort of reduces its impact on that. Um, if you know what your pH needs, especially if you're using tap water that's kind of has a pH buffer. Um, you can pre-adjust the pH before you start adding anything to the water. And that's really the best way to, to handle that. The problem is if it's like the first time you're working with that water, you don't know how much pH adjustment you're going to need. Um, so yeah, I start with water. I have to add quite a bit of pH down to my water and I try to add most of it before adding silica. So I sort of pre-prep the water for the pH. Yeah, um, I think this is a awesome segue to go into mixing nutrients, and this is something I see a lot of people always mess up. Um, you should always mix your nutrients in a certain order. Uh, would you like to explain this to our, our listeners? Yeah, it mainly has to do with sort of how soluble different um, nutrients are, and putting them in in an order that gives them sort of the maximum chance of dissolving properly without, like we're saying, falling out of solution or precipitating. Um, it's also important to understand why why the nutrients come sort of the way they do, especially these three-part blends are, are mixed that way to increase the ability to concentrate them and, ha- and maintain the solubility. Um, and so... You can't mix like, you know, um, grow and micro together. You'll cause a lot of precipitation of nutrients if you just mix those straight together. So they need to be in, uh, you know, water and diluted in order to do that. Um, We add silica first. um, And silica is sort of the most stubborn of the elements that we want to provide to our plants to to dissolve. Um, It's hard for people to, to fully grasp that because it looks like water most of the products that you're using are are liquid silica products 
Um, it looks like it's dissolved already. You know what I mean? But that's another one that it, when you squirt silica into the water, you can see the little like cloudiness spread through the water of the undissolved silica. And um, somebody asked me this a while ago. Um, I, I was on the chat room or something, and I, I told them that the, this, I give a silica an hour after adding it to sort of continue its dissolving. So it's not just adding it first, but to give it an hour. And somebody asked me, is there anything to that? And I'm like, this is very much like, you know, baking a pan of lasagna and then giving it an hour soaking in the sink before you go to, to clean it out. You know, that baked on cheese on that lasagna pan is soluble in water. But it's not immediately soluble in water and letting it sit that hour really helps, like, you know, make it a lot easier and make it much more soluble. Um, so that's it's the same sort of process. We give the silica time to dissolve. Um, silica, again, as we mentioned, is sensitive to pH. Um, so if the pH is too high, it has a hard time dissolving at all. Um, which is ironic because silica raises the pH of things. So it both increases the pH and then has a hard time dissolving when the pH is too high. It's like, wait, that you did that to yourself, though. <laughs> um, and uh, then calcium and magnesium. And again, it's really to ensure the, the good solubility of those elements in the, in the solution. <clears throat> when it gets to... Um, the base notes you, you put in, it, essentially, really, the rule here is you put in the, the nitrogen first. Um, so that leads us to put micro in first. Um, micro has the, the highest dose of nitrogen um, grow. And then the, the final of the NPK nutrients you want to add is phosphorus. Um, and so you put in the bloom. And then if you're using any bloom boosters or anything like that, you would add them right on the heels of the bloom to be adding sort of all of the, the like nutrient elements at the same time. Um, and then you add the stuff that, that sort of doesn't matter as much or is more soluble by nature, things like humic acid or wetting agents or other, um, you know, if you're using um, an antibacterial, either bacteria or a, a product like hydrogen peroxide or something, all of those things would come in at the end after everything else has had that opportunity to, to dissolve properly. Yeah. And touching on the, the three-part nutrients, I guess we should just tell our listeners with the two-part nutrients, um, you know, the part A, the reason the part A and the part B are separate is uh, the part A is heavier in calcium, the part B is heavier in phosphorus, um, and those two clash. Yeah. And yeah, there are antagonistic relationships that you kind of have to split up like that. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons that you can't be sort of mixing and matching and crossing lines, especially with the base nutrients. Um, they will cause lockout situations if you try to use like one brand's micro with another brand's, you know, part B or something like that. Um, they're not sort of designed to to work together like that and it'll create antagonistic sort of problems or precipitations or other things um so there are other things i'm often actually asked that question with silica for example it doesn't matter you could get your silica from pretty much anybody and it's not going to affect the solubility of the other nutrients um but if you're getting your base nutrients Ideally, your, your CalMag product is sort of from the same line or formulated to work with your base nutrients. Um, 
different CalMag products have really different ratios of nitrogen, for example. So um, if you're using a line that has a, a CalMag that's higher in nitrogen, that may be compensated in the micro or in some other part of that line. Um, and then there are things that, that don't matter that you can sort of mix and match. So silica or humic acid or other kinds of things, it doesn't matter that if they're in the same brand or not really at all. Um, what does matter is the basic NPK contributing elements. Yeah, that's that's an awesome explanation, and I, I love the I love the example of the lasagna soaking the yeah, sink. Yeah. Cool, <laughs> that was great. Um, yeah. So, can we just quickly touch on nutrient element ratio? I know you kind of kind of went into it a little bit there, and why it's important. Yeah, so the nutrient element ratio is really what's important when we're thinking about how much we feed or what we're feeding. I mean, there's different things about how much we feed, but um, that's really just the, the NPK, as some people call it. Um, but there's a lot more to it than NPK. It's um, silica, NPK, calcium, magnesium, all, all the whole sort of string of things that are in a relationship with each other. And really what's more important um, in most plant fertilization isn't the absolute doses, although the absolute doses matter. What matters for keeping plants healthy is the ratio among the different elements and making sure that they have enough of the different elements um, all present at the same time. Um, there's another interesting thing about calcium and magnesium, for example, that if one of them isn't present, the plant just takes up the other one, almost thinking that it's getting magnesium. Calcium and magnesium mimic each other in uptake. Um, so if there's only calcium or only magnesium present in the water, the, the plant will get too much of that and not enough of, of the other one. It's not just going to sort of only take what it needs of the one. Um, so the calcium and the magnesium that are present and available for the plant need to be in a fairly precise relationship ratio to each other in order for the plant to be able to sort of get the right amount of, of both of them up. So when we're thinking about sort of, I often like in growing hydroponically to like driving a race car, you're on top of everything. You're trying to, to sort of dial in the inputs and get maximum performance out of this machine, right out of these plants. Um, and the nutrient element ratio is, you know, giving the plants, figuring out and sort of following a, a guide or a recipe or something that, that understands what the plant wants to be exposed to and what the plant needs in these different ratios um, during the course of the grow and providing that in the water. The closer you get to the ideal nutrient element ratio, the, the less that runoff is going to be important. Right. When we we're talking about sort of the little bit of runoff creates this little flush each time. That little flush is important because our nutrient element ratio wasn't probably spot on. It was a little bit off from what the plant sort of absolutely wanted. When you really nail the nutrient element ratio, you can reduce the amount of runoff that you have. Um, the plant just sort of grows healthier. If your nutrient element ratio is really off from what the plant is expect or wants, then you'll run into runaway EC issues. Um, we see those runaway EC issues oftentimes. Um, well, one common example is when autoflowers start flowering, um, the grower may not be sort of dialed in and aware of that. And if they continue to feed the late veg newts 
after the plant has flipped into sort of its flowering timeline, um, you're doing everything exactly the same as you've always been doing. And all of a sudden your, your runoff EC is skyrocketing um, because you're not providing the right ratio. It doesn't really matter about the absolute doses. It matters about that ratio. While we're discussing uh, those ratios uh, and you talk about autoflowers and uh, I guess the differences between photo periods uh, with, with these uh, nutrient calculators or, or nutrient guides, um, can we just run through the, the very basics of MPK and the stages of the plant's growth uh, where each of these are more important? Let me, I'm actually, as I'm getting into this, I'll pull up my uh, sort of the, the background spreadsheet to my nutrient chart, which breaks down a lot of that stuff that I don't keep all of these numbers in the top of my head. Um, so the big thing that, that happens, I mean, there's two basic stages of of the ner for cannabis plants there's a vegetative stage and there's a flowering stage and and within each of those we make much more subtle adjustments but there is sort of a a basic nutrient element ratio that we could talk about for for each of them um hold on i'm getting down here i can give you the so the, the big difference um, that happens between the vegetative and the flowering um, nutrient element ratios is a, a big increase in the amount of phosphorus. Um, that's basically the difference between in, in our ratios between our, our veg and our um, NER is NPK CMS that, that we're tracking. So nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and uh, sulfur. Um, and we're going from just as if you're thinking about the NPK aspect of that, the vegetative NPK is six, one, five and a quarter. And the flower NPK is six three six. Yep, very cool. Um, that's that's exactly. Um, so yeah, be. cranking up the the P and the K, and the P almost comes up by accident because it's not as important for us in, especially in cocoa, to to increase the K much. Um, like we were talking about earlier. Um, cocoa exchanges calcium for potassium, essentially, and it does that all throughout the grow. So we add a little bit of extra calcium to the water pretty much always when we're growing in cocoa. The cocoa takes that calcium and replaces it with potassium. Um, and so increasing the potassium, and in fact, that's an area where growers get themselves into trouble, is using bloom boosters that are designed for DWC or designed for soil um, that increase the potassium dose and create lockouts in plants from bloom boosters. Um, so you do have to be worried in cocoa about your, your potassium dose. It does not need to go up that much in, in cocoa. You don't need to be giving a huge. It's more important to sort of boost the, the phosphorus. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's an awesome point you made there. Um, I think a lot of people just hammer the P and the K. They just They see these 13, 14... PK boosters and they just hammer the plant with it. Yep. And um, yeah, there's people experience That's some where problems I see so from that. Many... Yeah. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, you do. Um, it's like growers get greedy there at the end. You know, it's like they have these plants that are growing great all the way through and they're just flying and then they try to like give massive doses of, of bloom booster. And actually I, I need to reduce the, the dose of bloom booster that I list in, in my chart um, because it's even, it's too aggressive itself. What it's not, it's not even terribly important. Cannabis plants do really well on a standard MPK. If you're following like my rate, my recipes without using the, the bloom booster at all, you'll be totally fine all the way through flower. You're probably not even going to notice the difference. If you do introduce it, um, it, it's almost more likely to cause some issues with you. You, if growers recognize, uh, the, well, uh, I come across a lot of people that think that there's a, a time late in flower where plants and cocoa experience calcium deficiency. And the reason that they think this is because that's the time late in flower where they increase the dose of bloom booster, um, that um, the potassium is in an adversarial relationship with uptake with calcium um, and on high EC, is, it creates a problem for the uptake of calcium. So when you crank up the dose of potassium and you crank up the dose of, of electrical conductivity just across the board, you make it very difficult for the plant to absorb calcium. And it's not. And so their response is, I increase the dose of CalMag in late flower. It's like, nah, yeah. that's not the problem. The problem isn't that there's not enough calcium there. It's that you're making it really impossible for the plant to gain access to it. Um, so that's the other sort of message I'd like to send to Grace is, is when you run into a nutrient deficiency issue, it, it's not always because it's not there. And it's, it's often actually not going to be solved just by raising the dose. Um, it, it's usually not related to the dose. It's related to some interaction or the EC is too high or the pH is off or those are all more likely, especially if you're using you know, hydroponic nutrients. I mean, if you're like making your own nutrients in your bathtub, then maybe it's because there's not enough of something there. But, um, you know, if you're buying a, a well-synthesized product, um, it's probably not lack of dose. It's because of some other uptake or, or interaction issue. Yeah, you make an awesome point there. I think people should stop and think before they buy all these nutrients and really think about do I need this nutrient that I'm adding and why is it why is it important to my garden, you know? The boosters are definitely yeah. one that I, I find people that people just love those boosters yeah. and hammer them and it's it's just so frustrating. Yeah. I, I uh, there's there's definitely a lot of things out there that people don't necessarily need, but they just they have it because their friend has told them, Hey, I use this and it's good. So yeah. people really think about why these things are important before you add it to your garden. Um I think yeah, know, know what they do. Uh, absolutely. The nutrient companies are going to try to sell you all of their products, right? Even though you don't necessarily need all of the products. So to, to learn what different products do and to understand sort of what the function of each one of them is. It, it's totally true that you can grow plants with just the base nutrients and cow mag in cocoa and have good success with that. You know, I recommend adding things like silica, adding things like humic acid, other stuff, but I'll tell you why each one of those is particularly important. And then, you know, the nutrient companies will come out with a whole bunch of other stuff and marketing strategies about how to sell them to you and all the rest of these things, but really try to understand if that fits well into the style of grow that you're doing um, and 
is this really something that that you need for your growth? Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, um, you know, it's been an awesome time chatting with you, Doctor Coco. Um, I'm sure our listeners have learned yeah. a lot when it comes to Coco now. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely, and. One thing with Dr. Coco, Dr. MJ Coco, you you have a fantastic webpage, which yep. um, has led us to you in the first place. And Adam uh, has been a, a scholar of, of your work, um, as you probably heard throughout the podcast. Do you want to give your, give your, give our listeners a, a shout out to what you do and uh, how they can get access to more of your information? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So CocoForCannabis.com. Um, and I, you know, I had the book over cannabis at growers guide, but we went ahead and put um, sort of all of the material in the book into articles and I've added a number of other articles. Um, so we have a, a pretty good table of contents, at least on some of these topics, certainly on growing in cocoa, on fertigation, on watering, on mixing nutrients, on some of the transplanting, like I was talking about on, um, plant training on growing seedlings in cocoa, all of those kinds of things um, covered in our table of contents. Um, I've been doing a lot of work lately on our grow light guide, doing a lot of uh, grow light part testing and other things like that. So we have a cool grow light guide that I'd invite you all to, to check out, um, learn about PPF and PPFD and how to evaluate horticultural lighting. Um, uh, product guide, you know, I've been trying to expand the product guide to give more options for people in Australia. That's still certainly a goal. We have lots of um, users down under, and I, I'd like to get that sort of um, more geared towards you. But it's still a way to see what kinds of products you need and what works well for different sort of elements of this. Um, and then, of course, we have a huge community, um, thousands of growers in our community, hundreds of growers keeping grow journals in our forum. Um, and we do grow challenges three times a year. The next grow challenge will be the new year's grow challenge starts on January 1st. And, um, we all sort of germinate seeds on January 1st and grow together. Um, so I'd like to invite everybody if they're able to, to grow along with us in that would be a lot of fun. Um, come by cocoforcannabiscom forward slash challenge and sign up for that. I'm actually, just in the process of turning over that page from our current um, ongoing challenge right now is the the plant training grow challenge. Um, And we have a couple hundred growers um, keeping journals in this. Um, And the the page has been about the plant training grow challenge. I'm turning it over now to the new year's grow challenge, but the sign up is already in place. If you want to get on there and sign up for the new year's grow challenge, you're welcome to do that. Um, stop by our chat room. We have a live sort of 24-hour cannabis chat room. You can log in and chat with your fellow growers, um, you know, join our forum and, and just kind of grow together with us. We'd love to have you over at uh, Coco for Cannabis. I have one um, one of my members of the steering committee that, that helps put together these challenges is from Australia. And um, Australia comes in just behind the UK in our user stats. So I'm going to put this out as a challenge to, to you guys now. He's been trying to get Australia to come in third place now, right? You're in fourth place behind UK in terms of our visitor statistics. So we're hoping to get Australia to overtake the UK. It's kind of neck and neck. Um, I'm sure that that's good motive for all of your country men and women to come by and visit us at cocoforcannabis.com. Yeah, it's uh, definitely an awesome website, and I encourage everyone to 
study everything that's on that website, you'll definitely uh, become a much better grower. Um, and we'd love to have you on for another episode to talk about light and all those PPFD and training. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be awesome. And Thanks training, for coming yeah. on the show. Absolutely, guys. It would be my pleasure to come back on. Um, so yeah, that, we will have to set that up at some point. But um, it was a lot of fun talking to you guys. You, like I said, I've been really dived into the world of, of lighting lately. So the last several podcasts I've done have all been about lighting and other things. It was really fun today to to come back and, and talk about our my roots, yeah, like literally, right? And thinking about the, the cocoa and... and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So thanks for having me on, and uh, it was a pleasure. It's been yeah. awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming on board and giving us your time. Absolute yeah. pleasure. Yeah, so everyone, visit Dr. MJ Coco and uh, Coco for Cannabis. You will definitely love the website. Thanks for coming on, mate. Excellent, guys. Grower love to both you and to everybody out there growing in Australia. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Canter. Any guest views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the hosts. Canter strongly suggests listeners research local, state, and federal laws and regulations before conducting any cannabis-related activity. 